Let's go ahead and just begin by bowing our heads and going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we can come before you. We know that you already know our prayer requests. We know that you're already aware of our needs and our circumstances, yet nevertheless you desire us to bring these petitions and intercessions before you. And Father, we particularly remember this morning the uh, DM2 conference up there at Preston City and pray that things will go well there and that the uh, teachers will be relaxed, and especially Jeff with his first time, and that he will be relaxed and recall that which he has studied and put together and be able to faithfully execute uh, his his mission there and to train those who are there to uh, teach through the book of Romans. Father, for us, we pray that today as we study your word, that we can put our focus and attention upon your word, set aside the distractions that uh, easily invade our minds and cause us to drift and to think about other things. And, Father, allow us to focus upon you and upon your word that God the Holy Spirit might use this time to strengthen us spiritually and remind us of where our priority should be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 6. But before we begin our study, I want to say something about the special uh, weekend that we celebrate every year, identified today as Memorial Day. Memorial Day was originally identified as Decoration Day, which was a time when people would go out and decorate the graves of those who had given their lives in the War of uh, northern aggression, as we always called it in the South, uh, the American uh, War between the states. This was um, uh, first started probably in the South, but there are some that dispute that. In fact, nobody knows for sure. It happened probably, uh, the idea probably sprung up in many locations, uh, both in the North and the South, where women would go out and decorate the graves of those who had died uh, during the war. Uh, it was observed uh, in the South for many years as well as in the North. The um, uh, uh, General Logan, who was the uh, head of the National Army at, after the war between the states, made this an official proclamation in 1868. But what's important is not the history but its significance, and that is to remember those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for us that we might have the freedoms that we have today. And when we talk about this, we need to understand something about uh, the freedom that we do have today. And that was understood by our founding fathers as a freedom from government. Not that they were anarchists, that they wanted to do away with government as a whole, but they viewed it as that we needed to have freedom from the intrusion of government in our lives. They understood that uh, that government wasn't the solution to our problems. Government more often was the problem. That as government continues to multiply regulations, it begins. It puts more and more restrictions and demands upon businessmen and upon individual citizens, making it more and more difficult for them uh, to carry out their daily lives and to uh, be successful in business. 
and we have lost this concept today, but this is a concept that is grounded in the Judeo-Christian ethic. And we use the term Judeo-Christian because much of this has its foundation in the Old Testament, identifying and isolating the principles that are uh, that are established through the Mosaic Law and through the Old Testament. Uh, not ju- it's not just a New Testament concept. It was grounded in in the Old Testament. The principle of liberty, the p- principle of freedom, grounded upon uh, the foundational uh, divine institution of individual human responsibility, that we are accountable and responsible for our own lives and our own decisions, and it is not uh, the government's responsibility to come in and create such an enormous safety net that no one ever uh, really experiences either their the consequences of their own failure, from which we learn so much, and neither does it uh, allow us to truly experience all of the uh, benefits of our successes. To the degree that we limit our failures the consequ- and the experience of our consequences of our failures, to the same degree we limit our ability to experience uh, success. And we have people who come along and say, well, some people just make too much money. Well, who has the right to say that? Who can come along and set a standard saying that a certain amount is too much? Uh, that's an extremely subjective and arrogant decision. People should have the freedom to pursue success uh, with every ounce of energy that they have. Some may only do it a little bit, some may do it a lot, but it should not be restrained by uh, government interference. And it is that kind of liberty that is the liberty that... Um, <clears throat> that many gave their lives for that we might have. And we have, uh, while we have gained it on the battlefield uh, too often and sadly, we have lost it in Congress. And uh, it, it, it's necessary for all of us as believers to be watchful today, to be involved just as in this situation with this city ordinance, just to be involved, let our voices be heard, uh, maintain contact, contact uh, with our leaders. Otherwise, uh, legislation will take away all that has been gained by so many sacrifices uh, that have down through down through the centuries. As I pointed out in the introduction on Memorial Day, just a couple of pictures. Here is the uh, memorial to the Confederate dead that is at Arlington National uh, National Cemetery, and I was just there a couple of weeks ago and was able to take a couple of these pictures. One of the little sayings that you find every now and then in an email or somewhere on the Internet is a a truism that's designed to honor the soldier, and I understand that. It is a statement that says that, that there are only two people who have ever offered to die in your place uh, for your freedom. Uh, one, is, uh, one is the American soldier, and the other is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, one died for, the, I think it goes on to say, one died for your soul, one died for your freedom. But the reality is that Jesus Christ died for both. He died for your soul and for your freedom. Galatians 6 1 says that it was for freedom that Christ died to give us freedom from sin and death. 
And that's the foundational issue in understanding any form of liberty. It's not simply a liberty from government for what makes government a problem. What makes government a problem is that government is composed of fallen people. Government is composed of sinners. And those who are dominated and controlled by this, by their sin nature will always trend toward accumulating power and control over others. This is why in the United States Constitution there are checks and balances. Uh, I read something the other day that, that, um, our president said that, that, that something must change in, in Congress because it's too difficult to get anything done. That's why the Constitution was written the way it was, is to make it difficult to get anything done so that our liberties could be protected. And uh, sadly, that we've lost too many of them uh, over the years. But the real issue in freedom is understanding the spiritual dynamic because when a culture, when a people lose their understanding of that spiritual foundation, then that which is built upon it, which is political and civil freedom, cannot and will not continue. That a culture that does not understand and does not accept the principles of freedom laid down in in Scripture, laid down through that Judeo-Christian heritage, then they will eventually lose their political and civil freedom. And and a great illustration historically of the, the fact that our liberties are built on the Bible are that the nation that has the, has experienced the greatest liberty in all of history is the United States, and second to that would be other English-speaking nations. Well, the, the, the teaching of the Bible and the impact of biblical truth had its greatest expression culturally and socially in the, 19th, uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries in the English-speaking world. And sadly, as as socialism, as Marxism, as atheism, as Darwinism began to impact the English-speaking world, we saw all of those countries, the countries dominated, that were part of the British Empire first and, and the United States second, began to drift away from their Judeo-Christian heritage. If you look at Europe as an example today, and if you look at many of the countries that were formerly part of the uh, British, uh, the British Empire, they have all succumbed to various degrees of socialism, in which their citizens have lost a huge amount of freedom uh, due to excessive taxation, due to uh, their their social policies and social engineering, and now this is coming very strongly to the United States. The environment that creates, uh, or that which creates a, a sympathetic environment to that shift is an environment that has rejected the principles that are laid down in the scriptures. And so since our nation is not turning back to God, we're not turning back to scriptures, we can expect only more of the same, that unless there is the Bible to provide a correction in the life of an individual or the life of a nation, the drift is always going to be away from the truth and in the direction of a lie. But that does not impact our understanding of the past. Scripture also clearly lays out a principle that we see exhibited many times, and that is those that forget the past 
are doomed to repeat it, that history has a purpose, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and that is that the things that happened in the past were happened as an example for us. And so we must look to the past to learn lessons, lest we repeat the failures in the future. And that, if we cannot apply it in our nation, we can at least apply it in our individual lives. Now, let's direct our attention to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're shifting the topic just a little bit. This is still part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is still addressing his disciples. Now, there's a lot of debate in the commentaries and among different theologians that that Jesus is, is not only addressing his disciples per se, but there's been others, a, a mixed multitude, believers and unbelievers, that have come to gather around uh, our Lord. And so what the Lord does is he emphasizes uh, righteousness through this as imputed righteousness. And you will find uh, in some of your reading, perhaps, that this is an emphasis. And, and I even found in reading through one commentary that is generally very helpful that <clears throat> when this author was uh, em- uh, explaining Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 20, that states that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, a verse that we've studied in detail, that he took that as imputed righteousness. But then he shifts back, and when he summarized chapter 5 at the end of his summary, he did an excellent job of talking about this was uh, talking about righteous conduct, not absolute righteousness. And and so even in uh, some of the commentaries that are out there, there seems to be a, a, a recognition at some level that these some of these verses have to be taken in terms of how a person lives in terms of experiential righteousness and not in terms of the righteousness that we receive at salvation. At salvation, when we trust in Christ as Savior, Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, basing it on an Old Testament text in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 15, verse 6, that at that instant of faith in Christ, that God the Father imputes or credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us in terms of our moral and spiritual failures, but he looks at us as those who possess in our spiritual bank account, absolute perfect righteousness. It doesn't change us. It's not an infused righteousness that that creates a moral shift in us or a moral change. That was the part of Roman Catholic theology. But it is a righteousness that is possessed in us, something like someone who um, uh, uh, co-signs on a loan that when the person making the loan looks at, uh, you may have inadequate uh, credit or no credit, no money, but looks at the credit uh, uh, that, the, um, that the cosigner has. That's what God does. He looks at the perfect righteousness of Christ. That is more than sufficient. He doesn't look at our righteousness. That's imputed righteousness. Experience, experiential righteousness is the righteousness that we exhibit in life as we're walking in obedience uh, to the Lord. This was, as I pointed out in the conclusion last week, this was what Jesus summarized in the last verse of Matthew chapter 5, where he says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, 
Jesus here is not saying that you should be absolutely spiritually perfect or flawless with absolutely no unrighteousness. That is not how the word uh, telios is used. It, it really has a significance everywhere else in Scripture of being complete or mature, uh, not in the sense of being sinlessly flawless. Now, this verse has been one that has always uh, bothered me until I've had the opportunity to really work through in the last few months uh, all of the issues related to the context of Matthew 5. In fact, this word telios is used in the... Um, in the Old Testament, uh, to translate one a particular word that is used in Genesis chapter six verse nine, it, trans, it's, it translates the Hebrew word tamim, which means blameless. Basically, it's translated that way in reference to Noah. Noah was not perfect, but Noah walked in obedience to God. And so the conclusion that God makes is Noah was a just man, not perfect in his generations, but blameless. Noah walked with God. That's what blameless meant in the Old Testament. Not that there wasn't failure or sin on the part of the believer, but that his, his, his basic heart's desire was to walk and serve God, and most of the time he walked in obedience, and when there was sin, then he confessed that sin and was restored uh, to fellowship and moved forward. We have other passages that reiterate this, passages such as Genesis 17.1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. He wasn't calling upon Abraham to do something that was impossible. Living a sinless, flawless life in that sense of perfection is impossible for any of us to do because we possess a sin nature. God is giving him a standard that he can live uh, live up to. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 13, uh, in summarizing the law, the law says, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. The law was not calling upon absolute sinless perfection. So that's not what Jesus can be talking about as he's interpreting the law uh, to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 uh, down through uh, 48. In Psalm 18.23, we have a statement by David. David certainly was not a sinless, flawless believer. He had numerous sins and committed numerous sins, but he says of himself in Psalm 18.23, I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself uh, from my iniquity. The point is that, that we can live a blameless life in this sense uh, as we walk by the Holy Spirit, but when we walk according to the flesh, we need to confess that sin and be restored in our fellowship with God, and then continue to abide in Christ and enjoy that fellowship, which is an active concept uh, in the Scripture, walking with Him. So this idea of being perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect, is similar to the command from the law, for example, in Leviticus 11.45, where God says, therefore you shall be holy, for I am holy. God was not calling upon them to achieve a standard that was uh, that was unachievable. He was giving them a standard of walking in obedience. Now, he, Jesus is going to shift gears here in Matthew 6, 1, 
What it's been going on in the previous section is there were six examples taken from uh, specific commandments from the Torah that were being distorted and misapplied by the Pharisees. They were minimizing the law so that in one sense it was a, a little easier to conform to the law because it only dealt with superficial external obedience for, uh, rather than uh, an internal uh, uh, attitude that was free from the underlying mental attitude sins. What Jesus does is to provide a corrective. For example, he says it's not just the external act of murder that is wrong. It's the underlying mental attitude sins of hatred and anger that also uh, makes you a murderer. In the same sense, in terms of uh, sexual uh, immorality and adultery, it's not just the physical act that violates the law. It's also the internal mental attitude sin that produces that, which is mental attitude sins of, of uh, sexual lust. And so this is what Jesus has been correcting. Now he's going to shift from correcting their interpretation of specific uh, laws to correcting their application in worship. And there are three areas of worship that are mentioned in the sixth chapter. The first has to do with giving. The second has to do with uh, prayer. And the third has to do with fasting. And what Jesus is saying is it's not just the act. It's the mental attitude and the motivation behind the act. In other words, a right thing done for the wrong reason is wrong. If you are doing these acts of worship uh, in order to gain the approval and recognition of other human beings, then that's the only reward you're going to get. Uh, they may recognize you, you may get human praise, but that has no spiritual value or no eternal significance. And if that's your motivation, then yes, you're going to have your reward, but it's not worth anything. Uh, if you do it in secret, if your motivation is simply to honor and glorify God, uh, then it is your Father who will recognize that and will uh, reward you or return payment in kind, as we'll see that the Word says. So we have a warning that's given in the first verse. first verse uh, <clears throat> makes this shift from talking about specific commandments to talking about works. Jesus says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. I want you to notice through these passages that the concept of reward, which means a reward or a wage earned, the word can be used for anything, is, is used uh, six times in the Sermon on the Mount, the word reward is used. Reward is a concept related to uh, believers. It's not something related to unbelievers. Remember that salvation is a free gift, but a reward is something that is earned. A reward is something that is given for uh, exceptional conduct and behavior. A reward is something that, given, that is given to an athlete because he has won the games. Uh, a reward is something that is given to a servant who has performed well. But salvation is given as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
And so salvation is a free gift. We're not talking about what you must do to be saved here. We're talking about how a saved person should live and look forward to rewards in heaven. Now, another thing that we should understand here is the dispensational distinctive. Jesus is talking to disciples during the period of the age of Israel. The age of Israel began in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 12 when God called out uh, Abraham. Uh, that began the age of Israel. The age of Israel paused at the cross. The last seven years for the age of Israel take place during the time of the seven years of of the tribulation. That's the last seven years of the age of Israel. But at this time, during Jesus' ministry on the earth, Jesus is addressing uh, his disciples during the time of the age of Israel. So don't be thinking when you read reward here, uh, don't think that Jesus is talking about the judge, the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ here. The, the, the judgment seat of Christ is for church-age believers. That's our evaluation in heaven after the rapture. And so that's not what Jesus is specifically talking about. Now, there is an application we can make there because uh, at the time that Jesus is talking to believers in the Old Testament dispensation, we know from passages like uh, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that there will be an evaluation of Old Testament saints and there will be rewards given to them as well. So there's a parallel. And I believe that it is just as true for us as church-age believers as it is for Old Testament saints that God will reward us, and this takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. And again, this is not going to be based on simply overt or external actions, but it is based as well on our internal heart attitude, our motivation as we walk by means of the Spirit. We can do the same thing out of the motivation of the sin nature, walking according to the flesh. It's only when we're walking according to to the Spirit and doing the right thing the right way from the right motivation that it will uh, result in God giving us rewards. So as we look at this uh, chapter, uh, the first four verses uh, deal with almsgiving or charity or giving. Uh, The next four verses, verses 5 through 8, talk about prayer. And then Jesus is going to give an example or a model prayer. And then the third thing that he addresses is in verses 16 through 18 when he addresses the issue of fasting. And if you just understand that what Jesus is doing is he's taking these three primary components that were emphasized in rabbinical theology as the chief elements of worship. Uh, giving of alms, prayer, and fasting, that what Jesus is saying is that it's not the overt action that has value. What is important is that internal motivation. And if you're doing it for recognition, you're doing it for approval from other people, then it's not going to have any spiritual significance. It has no, it's not going to bring you any, any reward other than that which you have from other other human beings. But what matters is that you do it 
It's a matter of your, your own privacy. You're doing it as you serve the Lord. And the Lord sees, the Lord recognizes, and it's the Lord who will reward. That's the thrust of what he is saying, but there's a few things we ought to look at in terms of understanding the text per se. First of all, as we look at this verse, it begins with a warning. The warning is the word, the verb prosecho and an imperative, a second person plural, where he's addressing the group and he says, y'all, be warned, pay attention, look at this issue. First thing he addresses then, and this verse is a summary, doesn't get into the specifics until verse 2, but unfortunately the New King James and the King James translated this, charitable deeds. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds. Now the verb here is the infinitive form of poeo, which means to do. So he's talking about application. Uh, doing is not just Christian service. Doing is, as James identifies it, and there are a lot of parallels between the epistle of James and the Sermon on the Mount. James uses the word when he says that, that the things that you do, he's really talking about application of what we have learned. So what Jesus is saying here, take heed that your, that your application in terms of righteousness, the word charitable deeds, which in uh, verse 2 is Elie Mosune, which is a the Greek word based on the uh, root for mercy or pity or compassion, is the word that means charitable deeds. That's not the, the, the word that we have uh, translated charitable deeds in Matthew 6.1. It is the word dikaiosune. In, in, in rabbinical theology, the issue of application in order to gain the approbation of God to merit um, heaven is to perform uh, uh, to p- perform the mitzvah, the commandments of the law, so that you can accumulate enough righteous deeds in order to uh, be acceptable into heaven. It is a works-based. Uh, righteousness. But what Jesus is saying here, it plays on that understanding and that uh, terminology. He says, take heed that you do not do your righteous deeds. That's how it should be translated. Take heed that you do not um, do your righteous deeds before men to be seen by them. It shouldn't be the focal point that you are doing this for public recognition or just recognition among your um, among your peers. He says, otherwise, and literally in the Greek, this have, has, it should be translated something like, if so then, uh, if this is the case, then you have no reward. It's a present tense that can be expanded out into, into eternity that you have no reward today, nor will you ever be rewarded uh, for that from your Father in heaven. Now, another note here, when he says your Father in heaven, he's clearly talking to them as believers because only believers can address God the Father as their Father. Unbelievers, as Jesus points out to the Pharisees and identifies with the Pharisees in John chapter 10, he says, you are of your Father the devil. Uh, We only enter into God's family uh, by virtue of our faith in Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12. In John 1.11, uh, John says Jesus came to his own, that is, to the Jewish people, and they did not accept him. 
And then verse 12 begins, but as many as did receive him, so it's within a context of the Old Testament of the age of Israel, not church age, but as many as did receive him, to them gave he the power, uh, gave the power to be called the sons of God. And so it is that, or do we call the children of God? It's technoi. They're not sons, huios, adult sons, but technoi, uh, children. So the only way we enter into the family of God is by accepting Jesus as Messiah, the one who came and who died on the cross for our uh, for our sins. So again, the use of this phrase "Father in heaven" emphasizes he's talking to believers. He's not he's not addressing issues related to how to be righteous. He's addressing believers in terms of how they should live in a righteous way after after salvation. First example begins in verse two, <clears throat> when you do a charitable deed. When you give, and this was typical in uh, <clears throat> under the period of the Mosaic Law, that that the place where many people would go, for example, the lame, the crippled uh, man in Acts chapter four, four is outside of the, or in Acts chapter three rather, is outside of the temple, and it is there that as Peter and John came out, that he is uh, begging for alms. Uh, for some some financial gift in order to sustain him since he can't work. And they said, well, we don't have any money, but what we do have we'll give to you. And then they gave him the gospel. Uh, so this was the idea here. When you give uh, gifts to uh, uh, those in need, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Uh, this is a phrase that was... Um, it's probably an idiomatic phrase. There's nothing um, <clears throat> that's indicated uh, anywhere specifically of a uh, of a particular ceremony where trumpets were blown in a personal sense. Here, uh, there's some uh, <clears throat> mixed information that <clears throat> relates to this. There's some evidence that in the temple there would be certain collections that were given for a special need. Those specific, if that's what the Lord had in mind, then at those ceremonies there was a trumpet uh, <clears throat> that was blown. But we don't know of anything comparable to that that uh, takes place in the synagogues. Jesus talks about the synagogues and the streets, not the temple. So Jesus is probably using this simply in a metaphorical sense, is don't make a big show out of what you were doing. This is one reason why... Uh, we very simply just pass the plate. I've been in congregation. I've been in churches. I've been very uncomfortable at times the way the offering is taken up. Uh, places where they'll put the uh, offering box. Some of you are some of these churches with me in the past. They'll put the offering down at the bottom, and everybody gets up and comes down and and puts their offering in the plate for all to see. Um, some ch- churches they do this where the guest speaker stands in next to the offering plate. All of this is is done for, there's a lot of show and there's a lot of peer pressure and guilt manipulation that goes on. This is just the opposite of what Jesus is saying here in these verses, that we're not to make a public issue out of these things, um, That, <clears throat> but that's what they were doing, that they would be get, receive glory from men rather than from God. And so Jesus says, assuredly, they do have their... Uh, their reward. He calls them hypocrites 
And there are um, several times, 13 times in Matthew, Jesus refers to uh, the opposing group as hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrites uh, is a word that in Greek originally meant an actor, someone who took on a role. Eventually, uh, that came to be used uh, in, in, in Scripture in a slightly different, uh, different sense. In the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, the term hypocrites was used for the godless, but in the New Testament, it's primarily used for someone who's acting out a role that there's an external act or behavior that is put on, but it doesn't reflect who the person is in terms of their true inner attitude or their inner mentality. Now, this whole act of giving was something that was recognized by Christ and was a positively commanded by the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 15.11 said, For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and to the needy in your land. So ultimately, the provision for those in need came from the individual volition of the Israelites even though they had a uh, priestly bureaucracy that collected a tithe for the widows and orphans, there were also additional offerings that were made from individuals to take care of and to to sustain those who were impoverished. It was not the function of government to take care of people. When government gets involved, it becomes inefficient and destructive to the system. God recognizes that this needs to be something motivated by the people and not manipulated or enforced by government. There's no pattern in Scripture uh, where you see government coming to the financial aid of the poor and the widows. You, often you hear people who are involved in some form of liberation theology, which is a, a, a real euphemism. It's really Marxist theology, a socialist theology imposed upon the Bible. Then they go back to the Old Testament where the prophets uh, condemned the people because they were not uh, giving. They weren't taking care of the people. It's not, they're not condemning the government. It wasn't the government's responsibility under the law. The condemnation is that the people had turned their backs on taking care of their own. All the way through Scripture, it's the responsibility of individuals, and, and, and in this country, up until we had uh, the you know, the real uh, the development of social, a lot of social theory, social practice after uh, <clears throat> after the authorization of an income tax, that it became the government's responsibility to take care of the poor. Before that, it was the churches, you just, and churches took care of hospitals, orphanages. These things that came out of uh, of the the belief system, the Christian belief system of the people. That's why when you when you go down to the medical center, you have hospitals that are called Saint Saint Luke's, and Saint, it's Saint Luke's Episcopal originally. That uh, was a product of the Episcopal denomination. You have Methodist Hospital. You have uh, many other hospitals that were developed around this country. Uh, that all had their origin in one or another of the Christian denominations. It was a responsibility of the people to take care of the people, not the responsibility of the government to take care of the people. When the government starts to take care of the people, the people lose their freedom and the people become enslaved and dependent upon government. It destroys personal initiative, it destroys personal responsibility, and it leads to the internal collapse 
of the nation. But it doesn't mean when we talk about the fact that it's not the government's responsibility, we have to recognize that it's our responsibility. And too often because of the load of taxes put on people, it limits their ability to be able to give charitably to different groups and different organizations because the government has already emptied their pockets of disposable income. Matthew 6, 3 and 4, Jesus goes on to say, in a positive sense, when you do a charitable deed, here he's using the same term, Eliemosune, that when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is an idiom here. Uh, obviously, your left hand doesn't talk to your right hand, but most people were right-handed, even in Israel, even though there was a tendency towards being left-handed if you were a Benjamite. Uh, you were right-handed, you would give the offering. Well, your, your left hand is not involved in what the right hand is doing. So this was an idiom basically emphasizing the fast, fact that there should be sort of a spontaneity as well in your giving. You should provide that opportunity uh, for spontaneous giving so that it's not necessarily even planned. Now, there's a role and a place for planned giving. But there's also the opportunity where you should have a certain miscellaneous amount in your in your budget, so that when other needs come up that you hear about, you have the uh, money and the resources in order to supply that. So Jesus is emphasizing through this idiom uh, not only the fact that they would be giving. There's an assumption there that they would be giving but that they should do it in a way that is somewhat spontaneous, not planned, and <clears throat> it's not done for recognition. Verse 4, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Uh, the word for secret is a word, uh, krypta. Krypta is a word that means, uh, it comes to English in the form of a crypt, and we normally think of a crypt as a grave. Well, that's because in cathedrals, they always had a secret place under what they called the altar in the front of a cathedral, and that was called the crypt. And over a period of time, they would begin to bury people down in that space that was a secret space under the cathedral. And so the word crypt came to change its meaning from a secret place to a, <clears throat> to a grave. But its original meaning was uh, was something that was done in secret. Uh, when we talk about writing in codes, that's called cryptography. It's writing in secret. So that's the idea there. It's something that is done not in, in contrast to being in public. And that the word, Lord will reward openly. Now, the word here for reward isn't misthos. It's the verb apodidomi, which means to give back, to return back, or to pay back. Now, this may not be paid back in this life. It may be uh, paid back, restored, rewarded in the future in heaven for all of eternity. Now, Jesus says much the same thing in Matthew 6, 5 when he talks about prayer. He uses a lot of the same language. He says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, those who just have a front. They have a good show. They pray in a uh, <clears throat> wonderful, articulate, mellifluous manner. Uh, everybody's impressed with how they pray, how they've organized their prayer. Uh, it's almost poetic. It's just wonderful. People feel so good after they hear uh, someone pray. And so this was typical of the 
of the Pharisees, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. I think this is the same phrase Jesus used when he talked about giving. I think this is just an idiom that is used to talk about doing something in public and before people. He says they just want to do this in a way that gains public attention. And again, Jesus concludes, well, they have their reward. They get their public attention, but that's it. But he tells his disciples, and when you pray, and when he starts addressing his disciples in each of these examples, he shifts from uh, using a plural, which he does in each of the opening when he's condemning them, when he's warning y'all as a group, the negative. When he shifts to the positive, he shifts to a singular pronoun. But when you, you as individuals, you disciples, when you, you shall not be like the hypocrites, um, to pray standing on the synagogues and on the street corners. Uh, When you pray, uh, that was verse 4, in verse 5 when he shifts to the singular, when you pray singular, you shall, I keep hitting the same verse, 6, this is where it shifts. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you as an individual have shut your door as an individual, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Again, we see this emphasis on your Father. They are clearly seen as believers. Now, the old King James translated the word room as closet, and you would hear people talk about, well, I go into my closet to pray. Uh, That was an old idiom in old-time religion. But the Greek word tamion means an inner room, some place inside your house that's private, uh, not for display, not where everybody else is going to see what you're doing. And then you just go in, shut your door, and you pray to your father in secret, uh, in private. It would be a, a probably a, a word that communicates this a little more. You pray in private, and your father who sees what you do in private will reward you openly. Again, it's the same word, apodidomy. He will pay you back uh, openly, and you will receive that reward in eternity. Verse 7, he says, When you do pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. In other words, the pattern is not like the, the heathen or the pagans, but it should be distinct. Now, the word here translated vain repetitions is the Greek word batologeia, and it is an onomatopoeic word. And by that, it sounds like what it's talking about, bada, bada, bada. To the, to the Greek who wouldn't learn in his arrogance, a lot like Americans, won't learn a foreign language, uh, everything that wasn't Greek just sounded like, <clears throat> like it was somebody just talking uh, in empty, repetitive syllables. They would, they would sound like bar, 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 so they called them barbarians. Or <clears throat> it was just like they were saying bada, 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 and it was, uh, so the onomatopoeic term was bada It just sounded like they're saying the same thing over and over with no real meaning. Uh, often we get, this isn't really talking about the fact that, that many of us, when we pray, we, we get into various, um, various rhythms. We use, we, we often start our prayers the same way. We use similar phrases. We, we should pay attention to that and not just sort of get into a rut in terms of how we talk to God. God's an individual person, and we shouldn't just talk to him in the same sort of cliches all the time, which often happens. But this is really talking about the fact that, that <clears throat> among the heathen, they would, uh, 
one of two things, and either of which can be included in this. One is that in mystic religions, in the mystery religions, they would speak in tongues. They would not in the biblical gift of tongues, but they would speak in ecstatic utterance, and it was just meaningless gibberish. And that would certainly be included in the term bodologia. This is a verse that really goes against the whole uh, charismatic emphasis on having a private prayer language. Uh, I've had discussions with charismatics before who say, well, you know, my prayer, my private prayer language is more effective. And I always ask them, I say, well, well I'd, I'd love to believe that, but since you don't know what it is you're saying in your prayer language, how do you know that God is answering it? I usually get met with just kind of a blank, blank stare at that point. Um, <clears throat> so this also would include the idea that, that heathens would just go in and repeat the same prayer over and over and over and over again, the same prayer, just, just meaningless thinking that, that just going through the action would have some sort of impact. And, uh, <clears throat> what Jesus says is they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Conclusion, therefore, do not be like them. For your Father, again, emphasizing they already have a per- personal relationship with God because of salvation. Your Father knows the things that you have you have need of before you ask him. So in, in one sense, you don't just need to go through this sort of repetitive droning to somehow get God's attention. Now, later we'll see Jesus does use a parable where he emphasizes that it's it's fine to continue to importune God, to, to pray for the same things over and over again. It's just not once and done. Uh, so there's a, a balance between this. He's talking here about how the heathen do it, which is just uh, saying the same little road thing over and over and over and over and over again, thinking that somehow because I'm sacrificing, I'm giving up so much, and I'm just saying this one thing over and over and over and over again, that somehow God's going to take pity on me and finally answer my prayer. Uh, that's the heathen motivation. Now, when we get to the third, I want to skip the example of, of what's known as the Lord's Prayer, which is a misnomer. It's really the disciples' prayer. It's really just a pattern of prayer that is very much nuanced for this time and this dispensation because as Jesus and the disciples are challenging them, uh, the people of Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, uh, in this prayer, they are praying, thy kingdom come. So this is a prayer that fits within the, the immediate historical context and is not meant to be repeated uh, verbatim, word for word, in a subsequent time period. So I want to skip that. We'll come back and deal with that in detail starting next week. But the third example had to do with, with fasting. Once again, they say the same thing. Moreover, Jesus says the same thing. When you fast... Here he uses a plural uh, pronoun, when you all fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. And apparently they, would, uh, they wouldn't wash, they wouldn't comb their hair, they wouldn't shower, they would let their faces get, get dirty so that it, when you looked at somebody, say, oh, they must be fasting. Look how sad and horrible and ugly they look. Uh, and so it was a very physical thing. They're doing it for uh, public recognition. Jesus explained this by saying, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. They would somehow, uh, you know, let their face just be dirty or some kind of makeup or something so it looked like they were fasting. And Jesus again says they have their reward. People are going to ooh and ah about how spiritual they are, how pious they are, but that's all the recognition they're going to get. 
In contrast, when he addresses the disciples in verse 17, he says, but you individually, when you fast, so he's recognizing that they will fast. Now, fasting is never commanded in the scripture, number one. Three points to always remember. Fasting is never, never mentioned in the scripture as a command, but it's recognized as something people did. Now, why did they do it? That's point number two. In a, an agricultural pre-industrial revolution uh, culture, eating took a lot of time. You had to go out to the barn and kill whatever it was you were going to eat. Then you had to uh, clean it, eviscerate it, skin it. Then you had to go get all the firewood, and you had to build a fire, and you had to cook it. This was a time-consuming process. You didn't just go to the refrigerator and pull out a microwave dinner, pop it in the microwave for two minutes, and sit down and eat, where the whole process would take you five minutes. It took a lot of time to prepare a meal. And so the the point was by fasting... They were showing how uh, committed they were to a course of prayer action. They were going to set aside the, the daily needs in order to uh, go to God in prayer. Fasting wasn't an end in itself. Too often it's treated that way. And so the third point I want to make is that fasting wasn't designed to manipulate God or to show God, look how I'm beating up on myself. You ought to be impressed, so you ought to take me out of my misery here and answer my prayer. That's how the heathen would do it. But there's a leg- there was a legitimate fasting, and it was the fact that you were just not going to set aside the time-consuming distractions of life to focus on a spiritual necessity in terms of prayer. And so in contrast, Jesus says, when you fast... Anoint your head. Now, this is the word alepho. It's not the word creo. Creo is the word from which we get our noun Christos, the anointed one, which is the Greek counterpart to Messiah, Mashiach, uh, uh, announcing the anointed one, uh, the the Messiah, Savior. But this is an everyday use of the word alepho, and this is what you would use when you would get up and you would wash your face in the morning, uh, wash your hair, take a shower, uh, maybe put lotion on your skin so that it wouldn't dry out in the dry desert environment, and, and that sort of thing. And that's what Jesus is saying is, is get up in the morning, get dressed, put on clean clothes, put on some deodorant, wash your face, wash your hair. So when people aren't going to look at you with like you're you're depressed and you're down and say, oh, that poor person, they're fasting, they're not going to be able to tell at all. <clears throat> now, that's important because later on in James 5, James uses this word when he talks about uh, if any of you are sick. He's not talking about being sick, if you've ever listened to my, my series on that. He's not talking about being physically sick. He's talking about being spiritually weak because he goes on to say, let him... Uh, let him anoint, let him go to the elders and they will anoint his head with oil. It's not creo, which would be a ceremonial ritual anointing. It's this word. Uh, James is addressing a person who's so spiritually depressed because he's been going through one spiritual battle and failure after another because he just isn't uh, persevering in his testing that, that his, he's finally come to the end of his rope and he finally goes to the mature believers in the church and says, somebody's got to pray for me. And so they say, okay, the first thing is you need to go take a shower and get cleaned up and, and put on some deodorant and, and, and then you can start facing life again. Very practical advice there. Uh, it's not talking about physical healing. It's this same word that's used there which indicates that. 
in, in Jesus' response, he says, you don't do this so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who's in the secret place once again, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The point that Jesus is making here, it's that God looks at the heart. It's not just what we do, it's what we do and why we do it and the way we do it. We need, as church-age believers, to be walking by the Spirit, to be obedient to the Scripture because of of, uh, our desire to serve the Lord and to glorify Him, looking to Him for any recognition and reward, not to other people, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, gather together, to study, to reflect, to be reminded of, of what your word says, that we need to have a, uh, an internal attitude of submission and obedience to you where we're walking by the Spirit in fellowship and that, that we need to be concerned about our, uh, our obedience to your word, not just what we do, but why and how we do it. Father, we also pray for anyone here this morning who may be uncertain of their salvation or uh, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that by faith in him you might have eternal life. It's not based on works. It's not based on what you've done or what you haven't done. It's based solely upon what Christ did on the cross where he paid the penalty for sin, that we might have eternal life simply by trusting in him and him alone. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through and apply these things, that God the Holy Spirit would bring them to our, our, our memory, that we might apply them consistently, that we might mature and grow as believers to glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.